ways. But God calls us to be holy, to be different. Being different means letting God transform every area of your life. Are you ready to be different? We are going to talk about being different, but before we launch into the sermon, let me just say a word about next Sunday. Next Sunday, as we've already mentioned, is Commission Sunday, such an important day for us at the Edmund Church of Christ. It is a great opportunity for us to join together. You know, we don't all think the same way, we don't all look the same, we don't all have the same perspective, but we come together with a common mission. And that mission is given to us by our Savior Jesus to go and make disciples in this world. And that's what brings us together, this sense of purpose and mission. And we have a great opportunity. God is doing amazing things through our mission efforts here. And as was mentioned a little bit earlier, we have some new things happening. We have some mission trips getting back online for the first time in several years because of the pandemic. We have, I think, something like seven new missionaries that we're going to tell you about next Sunday. So lots of great things are happening, and I'm just thankful to be a part of it. We have a little video. It's kind of a teaser for what we're going to talk about next week. So let's watch this video. Our world is lost. Lost in the confusion and chaos. Lost in the struggle of sin. Lost in the darkness. But the darkness doesn't get the last word. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. We have light. We have hope. Let's walk in the light. Let's share the hope. Let's tell the world. We do have light and we have hope. And yes, this world is a dark place, but we are called by God and led by Jesus to take the light into this world. That passage there on the screen that was there at the end of the video, 1 Peter chapter 3, be prepared to give an answer when people ask about the hope that you have. It assumes that we have hope and it calls us to share that hope with the world. Next week, the different aspect we're talking about in this series is a different answer. Being ready to give the world a different answer. So I hope that you'll come next week. I hope that you will talk about and pray about Commission Sunday and really what God is leading you to do to participate in sacrificial giving so that we can continue to support missionaries and send mission trips and do so many mission projects that we do. This congregation is such a generous congregation always responding to needs and opportunities, and I'm thankful that we do that. If you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 4. That will be our text today, Luke chapter 4. You know, I don't typically watch much television news, but the other night I decided to tune in, really, if I'm honest, to confirm what I thought I already knew, and that is this. We consume and are consumed by bad news. Haven't you found that to be true? I know that's not the word of hope that you were looking for this morning, but I think we need to start there. We need to acknowledge that there is so much bad news in this world. And so I tuned in to the local news just to watch for a few minutes, and I started writing down the different 
issues, topics, and stories that they were covered just in the first 10 minutes. Listen to this. The death penalty and executions in our state. There was a bomb scare. Exotic dancing. Struggles in our education system. The murder of a police officer. The tragic shootings in Orlando. And a stolen fire truck that led police on a high-speed chase. And that's just the first 10 minutes of the local news. If you watch the national news, you know it's even worse. And I started thinking, what does it do to someone's mind and their heart and their perspective and their outlook when they just take in a constant diet of bad news? And, and maybe that's literally watching the news all the time. Or maybe it's scrolling through your social media feed. Or maybe it's going down rabbit holes on the internet and YouTube videos. Or maybe it's conversations with people at work or, you know, taking your kids to soccer and you're talking. Or maybe it's just all the things we're exposed to. We consume a lot of bad news. And we are consumed by bad news. And it impacts us. It shapes us. It can't not influence how we think and process and how we see the world and how we see ourselves and our lives in the world. You see, bad news breeds cynicism and pessimism and ultimately despair. Here I have something, and I'm going to ask you a question about this. And you probably think you already know the question. He's going to ask us what we see. Do we see a glass that is half full or do we see a glass that is half empty? But I'm not going to ask you that question, although that is a good question and it certainly speaks to what we're talking about. I'm going to ask you a different question. What do you think this weighs? How much do you think this weighs? Six ounces, five ounces, seven, eight ounces. The truth is I have no idea. <laughs> I really don't. I don't know. And it really doesn't matter the absolute weight of this glass of water. What does matter is how long I hold it. If I hold this glass for just, you know, a minute or two like I am up here, it's no big deal, it's not a problem, it's not an issue. But what if I hold this glass of water for an hour? What's going to happen to my arm? I mean, you know, I know I'm pretty strong and all, but my arm's going to get achy, it's going to get sore after an hour, right? What if I hold on to this glass all day long? Oh man, my arm is gonna get numb. It's gonna feel paralyzed. I may even drop it, right? Because I can't hold on to it. It's so noticeable. You see, that's the nature of bad news. The longer we hold on to it, the heavier it gets. And so if I hear or am exposed to bad news or even in my own life something bad happens I deal with it I confront it yes but when I start to linger when my focus continues to be on bad things that are happening disappointment discouragement bad relationships conversations that didn't go the way I wanted them to go the hurt that I feel from others the bad things going on in the world, as I began to focus more and more and even fixate on these things, they become a burden. They get so heavy. You see, we can't not be affected by the bad news. 
but how long do we focus on it? And to what extent do we try to carry it around? You see, the truth is, there is bad news, but we are supposed to be people of good news, aren't we? As Christians, as followers of Christ, we are to be people who embody and share and live out the good news. After all, what does the word gospel mean? Good news. And God is good. And Jesus has rescued us. And every breath you've been given is an opportunity. It's a gift from God to breathe in life that he gives you. It's an opportunity to experience and encounter the goodness and the grace of God and to share it with those around you. We have the light, and yet so often we allow ourselves to be consumed by the darkness. So today I want to ask you to consider a different outlook, a different way to look at the world, a different way to process, to make decisions, a different way to act and react and to interact with others, a different set of lenses to put on, to see the world, to see your own life, to see others. You see, Jesus shared good news. Jesus embodied good news. Do you remember what the angel declared to the shepherds as he made Jesus' birth announcement? We read about it in Luke chapter 2. We sometimes sing about it in the holiday season. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Good news of great joy. Have we forgotten? Are we so far removed from the incarnation? Are we too overwhelmed by the darkness in our world? And let's face it, sometimes in our own lives. Where is the joy? Where is the celebration of the goodness and the grace of God? Cynicism and negativity and skepticism. All of these things, they have a way of stifling joy. Jesus knew that, and Jesus faced that reality time and time again. One example is in our story today, our text today, Luke chapter 4. Jesus has been taken into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, and then he returns, and he goes home. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So right now we see this little slice of life for Jesus, and everyone is a fan of Jesus. They hear what he's doing, they see what he's, what he's doing and saying, and they like it. They're amazed at his teaching. He teaches as one with authority. And I know that they're wondering, could this be our long-awaited Messiah? The one who's going to deliver Israel back to its place of political and national prominence. Is he going to be the one? And Jesus walks into the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. And when he is there, he is asked to read from one of the scrolls, which was customary. And sometimes... The attendant would ask someone to read a certain passage, and sometimes they would let them choose a passage. We don't know exactly how it went down, but Jesus gets the scroll of Isaiah. 
what we call the book of Isaiah in our Old Testament. And he opens that scroll to a very specific spot. And he begins to read from what we call Isaiah chapter 6. And as he reads this, we get a glimpse into who he is. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This was the equivalent of a first century mic drop in the synagogue. I mean, that's what Jesus does here. He says, this isn't just a prophecy from Isaiah that I'm reading to you. I am embodying this prophecy. These words we read in Isaiah, you are seeing them with your own eyes in front of you. He was the earthly, physical manifestation of what Isaiah predicted. He was the long-awaited Messiah. But he wasn't the Messiah that they expected, was he? His hometown crowd couldn't believe these words were coming out of his mouth. They couldn't believe that this carpenter's son that they knew, they knew his family, they couldn't believe what he was saying. Jesus knew they were skeptical. And so he told them how hard it is for a prophet to receive honor in his own hometown. And then he gave them these two sort of interesting examples Back in the text, verse 25. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to the widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus implies here in Luke's account what Mark tells us explicitly in chapter 6, and that is that he will not do many miracles there in his hometown because of the lack of faith of so many people. The people didn't like this. They wanted miracles. They came to see miracles. And then Jesus goes into this explanation about Elijah and Elisha, and what he's doing here, he's giving examples of the people that God sent them to and these people are not the expected people. In fact, they are the marginalized. They are outside the covenant community of God. They are not Israelites. And yet, that's the people that God sent them to. That's the people that they went to reach out to. Well, the crowd did not like what Jesus was saying now. He did not fulfill their expectations he was saying things that sounded crazy to them. What do you mean, people outside the covenant community of God? And you know what they did? They dragged him, they took him out of town to the edge of a cliff. They were ready to throw him off the cliff. They were ready to kill Jesus. And of course, God intervened. And Jesus escaped. So what happened? Why such a big change between all these people who were fans of Jesus, it seems, and now these people who want to kill Jesus? 
I believe this is what happened. Those people refused to see Jesus for who he really was. You see, skepticism kept them from experiencing the good news of Jesus. I mean, they had good news in the flesh right in front of them, but they couldn't see it. They couldn't embrace it. They couldn't accept it. Their focus was somewhere else. Their version of good news was not what Jesus was teaching and doing, at least in that moment. They had a different agenda, different expectations of how things were and how things should be. Basically, they missed the good news. How often do we miss the good news? Because we are skeptical, because we doubt, because we allow the world to influence us, because of hardship, bad news, all the darkness in the world, we miss the good news. And the good news is right there. Look back at Jesus' quotation from Isaiah. Look at some of those key phrases and words there. Good news to the poor. Freedom for prisoners. Sight for the blind. He's setting the oppressors or the oppressed free. It is the year of the Lord's favor. These are the things that make one celebrate. These are the things that cause one to respond with great joy and contentment. In fact, these passages, these verses have been used as the foundation for liberation theology. A theology that shapes how we should approach oppression in our world. God and his kingdom and the values of his kingdom do not have a place for oppression. He came to set the oppressed free. And when someone is set free who's been in prison, what is their natural response? It is to celebrate, to embrace their freedom. What about someone who is blind and they receive sight? Well, they never want to close their eyes again because they don't want to miss anything. They are so happy, so joyful. What about someone who is oppressed when justice finally comes, when deliverance finally happens? What is their response? Free at last free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. It is celebration. And what about someone who is poor? Someone who is facing bills continuing to stack up and debt continuing to increase? What happens if someone comes along and says, I'll give you relief. I have good news for you. What's the response of that person? It is gratitude and thankfulness and joy and celebration Jesus says that's what I'm about that's what I came here to do to proclaim good news the gospel is good news look at that last phrase the year of the Lord's favor his Jewish audience would have known what he's talking about there what Isaiah was writing about the year of Jubilee every 50 years this wonderful year of celebration. The Jewish community were commanded to observe this year of Jubilee. And in this year of celebration, they were to cancel debts. They were to return land. They were to free servants and slaves. Can you imagine the anticipation as Jubilee was approaching? Just five more years. Hey, it's just three more years and it's Jubilee. Jubilee is next year. All the debts are canceled. The land is returned. 
Servants and slaves are free. Can you imagine the celebration and the joy? And some people are thinking, now wait a second. Jubilee wasn't necessarily good for everybody. What about the people who owned servants? What about the people who owned the land? What about the people to whom money was owed? They aren't celebrating. They're missing out. They're losing something. And that question and that response reveals the deeper issue with joy versus cynicism. You see, that question comes from a place and a position of power and privilege as one who is owed rather than one who owes. Somebody who is already free rather than someone who is enslaved. When you don't get what you want, when you don't get what you think you deserve, you get cynical. The system doesn't work. This isn't fair. This isn't right. Here's what you must always remember. Are you ready for this? Here's what you need to remember. That's not you. You are on the other side of the ledger. You are the one who owes, not the one to whom something is owed. You, in fact, you and I, we, we are the ones who owe more than we can ever repay. You see, that's the side of the equation we fall on. We forget how much we've been given by God. How much we owe that we can never repay. How much has been paid for us, for our freedom. We are the beneficiaries of Jubilee, not the ones who are missing out, not the ones who are losing something. May we never think that we are owed and may we never let go of the joy and the celebration that comes with being the ones who understand the value of being set free. You see, when we go through life feeling that we deserve something, that we are entitled by God or the people around us, we will never find joy. But when we acknowledge how much God has done for us and does for us, that we have been given so much that we've been set free. We will learn contentment. We will find joy that transcends whatever circumstances are going on in our life or in the world. You see, Scripture is filled. It's full of descriptions and examples and reasons to have joy and to celebrate. Look at the lost parables of Luke 15, those famous parables. How do those stories all end? What is the culmination of those stories? They all end in spirited celebration. The shepherd finds that sheep that wandered off. The woman finds the coin that she could not find anywhere. And that father, that father of the wayward son, when he finally comes home and there's that embrace, what does he do? He celebrates. They all celebrate. The shepherd, the woman, the father. They celebrate because what was lost has been found. That is good news. That is great news. And by the way, let me just say, that's why some of us celebrate when someone is baptized. It's, it's not that we're being entertained. It's not that, that we're trying to be disruptive. It's not even that we're trying to show our approval as though somehow we have some place to show our approval. We are simply enacting the celebration of the lost parables 
of Luke 15. We are partying with a prodigal and his father. We are celebrating what was lost has now been found. We should have joy. Now, now I'm not saying you need to clap or you need to say amen. If you're not, something's wrong. In fact, I would say to you, don't judge those who are and those who are, don't judge those who aren't. We can all agree on that. I'm just saying that's an example. That's an example of a moment. If there ever was a moment, if there ever was a moment, that is an example of when we should celebrate. An example of how much we have to celebrate. But it's not just in that moment. You have reason for joy every day because God is still at work finding the lost, giving sight to the blind, delivering the oppressed, freeing the prisoner, speaking good news to the poor. God is still active in our world. You see, here's the thing. Joy is not the absence of what is bad. Joy is the acknowledgement of what is good. And there is so much good. God is good. And what God is doing in this world is good. You have the freedom. You have the power to choose a disposition of joy. You can decide to focus on the goodness of God and the grace of God, the deliverance of God, or you can focus on the bad news and you can carry it around and it will become a burden to you because it just gets heavier and heavier. You get to choose. Yeah, but you don't know how much bad's happening in my life and in the world. I know. The world isn't as it should be. It's not as it will be. But that doesn't mean God is not at work in our world. There is reason for joy. As some have suggested, it really comes down to one question. And that question is, how do you see God? When Jesus stepped into that synagogue and he read that passage from Isaiah 61, what he was saying as he used that prophecy is, here is who I am. This is what I'm about. I was sent by my Father, reflecting the heart of the Father, and this is who I am. How do you see God? You see, if you see God as distant and passive, God, you're just, do you see what's going on in the world? Why don't you do something? If you see God as distant and passive, that God is somehow disconnected from our world, you can see where that leads to cynicism and skepticism and doubt and apathy. Or maybe you see God as angry and condemning, that God's major purpose is to punish the people who were bad. That leads to fear and negativity, and ultimately it leads to despair. But if you begin to see God as revealed in Scripture for his goodness and his grace, you see, that leads to joy. That leads to contentment. That leads to a hope that transcends all of the circumstances of life. It's interesting, that day in the synagogue, knowledgeable Jewish people in the synagogue that day would have noticed something about what Jesus read from Isaiah 61, that he didn't quite finish it. He left something out. You see, you go back, as we read earlier, in Isaiah 61, and there's more to that quotation in fact, look at Isaiah 61, the second part of verse 2. Not only is Jesus proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, but he's also proclaiming what? 
the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus didn't quote that part. He didn't read that part, evidently. But for Jesus' audience, their expectation was, yes, we will benefit from the year of the Lord's favor, and along with that day of salvation will come a day of judgment for our pagan enemies around us. But Jesus expressed that the Lord's favor extends beyond the borders of God's covenant people Israel. That his grace extends to all. And I think that is why Jesus uses this example from Elijah and Elisha because they went to people outside the covenant community of God. And I think also that's why the people got so upset. They want the day of vengeance. We want our enemies to be punished. How do you see God? What is your primary picture of the nature of God? God is complicated. And we can't fully understand who God is. But you have kind of sort of a primary picture of God. And that picture, that image informs your mindset, your outlook. So how do you see God? God is good. God is gracious. Yes, there is bad news in our world. There is bad news probably in your own life. And you can choose to fixate on it, to focus on it, to be burdened by it. You can choose to become angry and cynical and full of despair. Or you can choose to focus on the good, the good news of the gospel. And you can live each day with gratitude, with a deep-seated joy that even when bad things happen, you know you are sustained by something deeper, more profound. You can choose to see light when there is darkness, and you can choose to speak of the goodness of God and demonstrate the grace of God. You get to choose. In his book, Beautiful Resistance, that has been sort of a loose framework for some of this series, John Tyson says this, God has an anecdote to cynicism, his presence, his redemption, and his fullness of joy. When we take time to celebrate, listen to this, we are bringing the glory of God into the brokenness of the world around us. You want to be different? You want to stand out from the world? You want to be in contrast to a sullen and cynical world? Then live with joy. Choose to live with joy. Because living with joy is an act of defiance in our culture of despair, isn't it? You want to stand out? You want to be different? Then live with joy. And as you live with joy, you will be defying the very status quo of our culture, the very norms of our world. Now, I think it's important as we wrap up to say this. I am not suggesting that to choose to live with joy is just a matter of flipping a switch for some of us. It's not just a matter of, hey, just turn that frown upside down. For some of us, there are real mental health issues that become debilitating. And to you, I would say, there is help available. Get help. Please, get help. For many of us, it's a matter of making some different choices. Choices about what we consume, choices about our conversations, 
Choices about our posture. Choices about how we process, see the world. You see, those are deep-seated things that come from a much deeper place. And so maybe our choices come from, we need to address some of those heart issues. It's not always an easy thing to live with joy. It sounds easy. Just smile, be happy. It's not always that easy. I think it comes back to how we view God and that we're reminded of how good God is. Even in our own lives, what God has done in our own lives. Remember the side of the ledger we're on. God has delivered us. He's freed us. We are the ones who owe what we cannot pay. You sang the words just a few moments ago. Now embrace the truth. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Live with joy this week and see what God does. If we can encourage you, let us do that. If we can support you and pray for you, we want to. A couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor. It's right behind me, a little room. Just, you can go there in just a minute when we stand up. They'll pray for you. They'll encourage you. Or you can come down to the front, and we'll try to do that as a church family. Or if you need help beyond that, please do not, do not let anything stop you, keep you from reaching out. If this is a critical moment for you, reach out. Maybe today you are ready to receive the joy that comes with being a follower of Jesus. You want what we read about. You want to celebrate. That comes with being in Christ. Maybe today you're ready to give your life to Christ, to be baptized into Christ, raised to live a new life with new joy. We'd love to celebrate with you today. We invite you to come as we stand together and sing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory, dear.